today's episode, Dave interviews TV personality Mark L. Wahlberg. Mark hosted Fox's Temptation Island and is the host of PBS's Antique Roadshow. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. I like my neighborhood. I really like it. I do, too. It's easy to get to. Yeah. I was in Burbank. I'm, I'm working with um, Dick Clark's widow, uh-huh. Carrie Clark, and I'm kind of consulting for her, and so I'm... At their offices are still on... Uh, not Ollie? really. Not really. He sold Dick Clark Productions before he died many years ago. Uh-huh. Arguably, the way that went down is why he had a stroke. Uh-huh. Um, but then... Ian Foley's here. Uh, Ian, Ian, this is Mark. Hi. Hi. Nice Hi. to see you. Ian's a producer on the show. I know. I hear his voice at the top of the day. <laughs> the, the show. Okay. Uh, so we just start. So go ahead. So you're talking about that was so, one of the reasons that, that he um, After he passed away, I, you know, because he was a big mentor to me, I, I uh, called her and said, what are you doing with the business? And, uh-huh. and uh, I came on as a consultant. But she has a, they sold their business, their building in Burbank, but they had right. a house that they owned behind it in case they didn't want to go back to Malibu. Oh, I see. And so four days out of the week, they're in Malibu at this great property right. um, that I make up excuses to go to just to sit and look at the ocean. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mondays they're in Burbank, which is convenient, and I go work out of there a little bit. And That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool, man. It's you know, it's like a full circle for me because that was my very first job in show business was in the Burbank office at Dick Clark's. That was my first job as a runner. I got to tell you that that's Have we started? Really, How are we doing so no, far? No, we, we, we're really doing well. The okay. Q ratings are really, I feel really I mean, good it's about fucking it. off, the, off the charts. I know. Um, no, it's really weird that you say full circle because of this. My wife... When I was married, my ex-wife Katie was in not-for-profit in Chicago, and when she came out here, weirdly that, that, enough, by the way, is the subtitle of my career, <laughs> not-for-profit. <laughs> <laughs> well, when she came out here, somehow she got a job producing for Dick Clark. You know, let me tell you something about Dick Clark's, and I said this at his memorial. I, they had a big memorial with all the big stars. Right. And they had another one, which was sort of just a get-together in the park across from NBC of people who worked at 3003 Olive, which was where his office was. Right, beautiful building. Yeah, and it was a family thing. Uh-huh. And you say that, and I made this comment that you can't go into any production anywhere in Hollywood and not have somebody in a key position who started at Dick Clark's. It's crazy. So as people are... Getting up and speaking, and I was emceeing because that's what I do. Right, is MC things for free. Right, that's why I said not for profit, because um, <laughs> I should be paid to MC a funeral. Um, <laughs> I think there's a scale rate for that. Actually. But anyway, they're all kind of <coughs> roasting him a little bit because Dick was notoriously cheap, so they right. said. And I let it go for a while, and then finally I said, "Let me, I got to stop this right now." I said, first of all. All of you were offered positions at a certain rate, and you said yes. You could yes. have easily said no. Right. And I'm looking around this lawn, and many of you took jobs in positions you were not qualified to do. Right. That Dick was underpaying you for the position, but you were so not, you would have never gotten that job. Right. And I said, so in closing, you guys can say what you want. I, I will concede that no one got rich at Dick Clark Productions. Right. But many of you got rich because of Dick Clark. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Good night. Well, but um, I, I believe that to be true because I was a warm-up guy for Dick Clark before I ever got paid to do warm-up. Right. And that was just because the guy didn't show up. And he said, give me that funny kid. And when Dick Clark pulls you aside and says you're going to do warm-up, even if you have any self-doubt, you kind of look at him and go, well, he must know right. something I don't know, so I'm going to go do it. Yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And and Katie had no business being there at all. Right. Not at all. Right. Like, like not at all. Right. And I don't remember the show. It was some, you know, I, the Candid Camera type show. I don't remember. Sure. It was some bloopers, show. Bloopers, probably bloopers. 
It was bloopers. And practical jokes. It was bloopers. That's yes. exactly what That's it is. Right. Because she'd come home and we'd go through tapes and tapes and tapes. That's right. exactly the show. Yeah. <clears throat> and what happened there was, and the reason I say it's full circle, is um, we got a dog because her uh, Dick's wife is into animals. They are notorious for having dogs, and dogs would roam the office. And, and at lunchtime, they'd go from desk to desk and eat your leftovers. Yep, and we got one of those dogs. Oh, well, is that we right? We got one of the dogs, and the dog, uh, the dog uh, was a great dog. You know, she was a pain in the ass, but we had that dog only for seven years. But prior, right before that, uh, Shira uh, uh, died. We got another dog, and. My marriage didn't last, but that dog just passed like two weeks ago. So that whole thing, it's so weird yeah. that you're talking about that because yeah. I would not have gotten that second dog if Katie didn't get that first, first dog, dog right. at Dick Clark Productions. That's so, so awesome. So here's, here's Dick for you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to fear him and love him. Right. And for some reason, he took a, a liking to me day one. Mm -hmm. And it was well, weird. Well, you're, you're likable, though. You know what I mean? I think he it's may have like... seen... It was before I even had aspirations of being an on-camera host. Mm -hmm. But I think he saw in me a lot of the same skill set that he has. And we've since talked about that. Right. And so for some reason... Less so now. You don't talk about it much now. He, he still is effective. You know, being alive is just a small thing for him. <laughs> no. It really is. <laughs> just means he works from home. Um, so... Uh, he, he, he would appreciate that. All right. So, you know... I always kind of feared him, but we were getting closer. Years go by, I leave, and I go do my thing, and, and he would send me notes. You know, I did Temptation Island, and mm -hmm. I was, you know, not really... I, I was glad to be on network television, but I wasn't necessarily going, hey, look at this work. And then it airs, and it was a, just a huge hit. I mean, just like Wednesday, I'm nobody, and Thursday, I'm somebody. And, and then I get this note, handwritten from Dick. It says, initially, I tuned in to, watch, to check out the babes, but I thought you did a pretty good job. So that was him. Nice. But I came back years later with a project that I was going to produce that he optioned and we were now partners. So this was talking about full circle. I've gone a couple times around. So I have the office that I used to bring coffee to in the corner now. And I get up from my desk and when I come back to my desk, one of Dick's dogs had left a present under the desk, <laughs> a big stinking present. And so I'm like, oh God. And so I leave and I go up to the receptionist and I say, you know, Bernardo, which was the name of the dog, left me a little something under my desk. Do we have any paper towels? And I hear Dick yell down the hall, oh, Bernardo picked you today, huh? <laughs> I'm like, yes, sir. You know, okay, but I got it. So I go to get paper towels. When I come back to my desk, I see the ass of a man under my desk, which is how I work. Um, <laughs> and and somebody's cleaning up the shit, and it's Dick. So he turns, and I, I see him on hands and knees wow. with a scoop full of poop, and he's looking back at me. He says, "I'm sorry about this." And I said to myself, then. Thank God I will have more interactions with him because the last thing I want is an image of my mentor right. is this cleaning oh, up the under my desk. But look at look but that at, was who he was. But look at also look at how you got there. You know what mm. I mean? The idea that you never thought that that was what was going to. Mm -mm. You never thought in your wildest dreams that that would even be in the world of possibilities. Not, not, a, not at Dick all. Dick Clark cleaning up poop underneath your desk, but having an interaction, having a relationship at like all. That. Right. Right. At all. With the guy who I grew up watching on TV as Dick Clark. Exactly. Who now calls me Mark. Right. Which that and that that's several times over now in my career. As I was watching Golden Glo the Golden Globes last night. I don't know if you watched it. It's a little show it was on NBC last I did. night. I, 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 I didn't want to watch it because I just finished the Silver Globes. Mm. So I'm like, you know what? I don't want to. And you know what? The Golden Globes not as good. Really? No. I'm so glad I didn't Silver Globes really hit it. Uh -huh. But um, I'm watching that, and as I'm watching people win, and I'm watching the camera pan, I, I'm like going, oh, I know that guy, and I worked right. with that guy. And, right. I, and then I had to say to myself, you know, that's crazy. It's 
That was never my intention, nor was it even remotely in my dream of possibility. To know that guy, I know that guy, I know that guy. Yeah, to have right. even survived in the career for a week, much less 25 years. Right. You know, and right. at the level that, you know, I am adjacent to. <laughs> Not in, <laughs> but tangentially adapted to. Yes. You're adjacent level. Okay, I like that word a lot. I'm adjacent uh, to greatness. But, but and, and, and the idea that we know so many of those people, and what is it that kept you going? I mean, that's it's, it's well, such a Well, now question. I find myself sometimes being asked to speak or teach a little workshop or something as right. you do, David. Right. And my opening line to young aspiring idiots is, if you want to make God laugh, you make plans. Right. Because none of my career was his plan. My plan was to quit the idea of being an actor or an on-camera personality because I'd just gotten married and I didn't have a job and my wife wanted to be an actress. Right. So I got the only job I could get, which was an entry-level position at Dick Clark Productions because I had worked on a ship with my wife six months previous. What ship? Sitmar Cruise Lines, which no longer exists. Right. Because it would fit on top of a cruise liner now, but uh -huh. we were this musical review show, or whatever. <laughs> and the DJ from that ship had left two months before us and was now assistant to one of the producers at Dick Clark's. Mm -hmm. Got me a one day job, and my job was making sure there were uh, sodas in the cooler. That right. was my job. Right, like a PA job. Yeah, not quite a PA job. Mm -hmm. It was below the PA. PAs right. told me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I stayed. And I would have never dreamed in a million years. And the idea was I didn't go to college, I went to one year of college. I will learn from the bottom up a career that to me is show business without, the dream had been to be an actor, I guess. Right. But now this will still be, I, I like producing. I'll learn to produce. Mm -hmm. And I went to Dick Clark University. Right. And, you know, one day a warm-up guy doesn't show up. Right. And I had never done warm-up, nor had I seen anyone do warm-up. Really? Never seen it. And I'm the production coordinator. And so warm-up, just so people know, warm-up is you're the guy that goes in the audience and warms right. up the crowd. Or as I like to say, you're the guy who's trying to entertain an audience that if you're working, whatever they came to see isn't. Right, yes, right. right. So they you're came the to see a show yes. that's obviously not happening right now, so you're forced upon them to try to entertain them while they, you know... You know, yell at you, and they have no idea that you're you're even going to be there. It's right. not like going to a concert where you where go. There's going to be an opening act, right. and then we're going to go see Bono. But, but ignorance is bliss, right? Right. Because not having seen, not having done stand up, nor had I seen anybody do warm up, I only did what seemed to be smart, right? Right. And I thought to myself then, I say, you know, I don't have ten minutes of material, but there are two hundred people, each of whom I bet have two minutes of interesting, right? So. God, that's so if awesome. If I turn it on to them, right. I can go all day. Right. And by doing so, I not only went for hours without a problem, I could do the same audience over and over again. And it then I, after I did what was a survival instinct, I then extrapolated it out as actually a scientific method that really makes sense. Stand-up is, and the vernacular of stand-up is, did I kill them, did I slay them, I murder them, it's me against you. Right. They come there with their arms crossed saying, make me laugh, bitch, right. and you go, fuck you, I'm going to try, right. and I hate you if you don't, and I hate you if you do. Right, right. That's, right. It's adversarial. Right. Hosting, which I, I just made the joke before we went online, is that um, I have friends who are insanely successful as comedians. Mm -hmm. I said, that's not where the money is, mediocrity. Yep. Adequate is where they pay you. <laughs> where you're from. Right, right. Who's right. from out of state. Right. But what I thought is if you take the focus off of you, right, and you put the focus on anything but you, you win. And hosting is that. Hosting is the show matters. Right. You don't. You're That's, the proxy. It always goes back to that. And, and there's a couple of things there. One, you're talking about gratefulness. The idea about being it, grateful. All gratitude. <clears throat> exactly. Right. Being grateful gratitude. For, for where it is that you are. And I read your, um, that awesome 
story that you wrote for, for Huffington, Huffington Post. Post. It was well, just, you're the it one was, who read it. I, hey. I read it. I was the one that awesome. read it. Um, and that is, a, and and uh, it was uh, a Huffington Post a year ago. Yeah, a year ago this month. No, two years ago, maybe. Eleven. Yeah, I don't know. I just wrote it and sent it in. Um, so whenever it came out, it doesn't matter. What what's apparent in this? Article. It's like an essay. It's longer than it should have been. It's longer than it should have been. Yeah. No, I, 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 but I love in, the whole thing. But I, I know the the founding editor of the Huffington Post. Uh-huh. Again, I'm adjacent to greatness. Right. And I said, Hey, I'm working on this thing. Can I send it to you? See what you think. It was five pages long. I knew right. we were going to. It was it really long. He yes, but it was never intended to go in. And he ran it the next Monday. He didn't call me back. He said, "I'm running it." And right. I'm like, great. But so. but but Mark, the, what I love about it is it's all about the appreciation that you have to just be. Where you are, to the the idea right. of saying I am just part of this whole thing, right? And and I'm not about it. It's not about me. Well, the more I take the onus off of me, mm-hmm. the more I'm successful, right? And and I did a show for USA Network a, a while, many many years ago, and I did an episode, and the producer said to me, "How'd you feel it went?" I said, "It was great. I got three applause breaks. I was funny in every segment. I killed it." He said, "Show's horrible." I said, "Why?" He said, "Because you were funny, but your contestants. It was a game show. They're not." Pros, you're the 800 gorilla, 800 pound gorilla. Right. You're a pro. Right. They're not. So every time you were that quick and that funny, you shut them down. Right. So I learned the Carson thing, which is don't say anything. Right. Prop them up, make them look great. Once a show, you might have one great button that kills, and that projects as though you were funny for the hour. Mm-hmm. If you try to be funny every time, right. you're yelling, I'm not funny, but will you buy that I might be? Right. Right. It's desperate. Right. And so the more I step back from me uh-huh. in any show I do, and the more I serve the hour, right? Macro, right? Looking mm-hmm. at it from above, the stronger I look, right? The more talented I appear, which is an illusion. And but if I if look, dude, if you can if you can stop screaming, I'm great at what I do, right? And just be great at what you do, right? They scream it to you, right? 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 The idea of, uh, I don't have anything to prove, I just have to be here. Right. That's all. I just have to be here. And what you, the interesting thing that you said was, you used the term, you used the word serve. You are there to serve it. And right. what's really great is, as a, not just as a host, but as a human being, we are here to serve. And you, you're on the board of Goodwill. Are you still doing that? I've been doing it for... Uh, 12 years. Look at that. You're, that. On the, you're on the board of that. And that's serving and well, helping others serve as well, right? I thought we were going to be funny, but I will go here with you we're for not, a minute. We're not here to be funny. That's Thank for God. Sure. Then you've got the right guy. Right. Um, here's my feeling on that. Mm-hmm. If I get anxious or, or upset or discontent or angry or any of the emotions that, that sabotage me, right. it's because it's too much me and not enough of the world. Oh, good. Right? right. So self-absorption, uh-huh. suicide is the highest symptom of self-absorption. Right. It is the flipping of reality. It's the reality that you're bigger than, you're running the world, right. which is bigger than we can comprehend. So whenever I feel that happening, which happens not on a, you know, it happens every other minute or so that I'm that close to it flip-flopping for me. But not suicide. Never suicide. Right. Now I'm too cowardly. I'm so afraid. I'm a Jew. Are you kidding? <laughs> My favorite joke is the guy says, I'm so, I was feeling so bad I was going to commit suicide. I said, how are you going to do it? He says, I'm going to take a, a bottle of pills. He said, what happened? He says, I took, he said, I'm going to take a bottle of aspirin. He said, what happened? He says, I took two. I felt better. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of where I'm at. In that okay. But what I found is the remedy for that. That is, being what? Self-absorption. Upset. Upset. Right. Anxiety. Right. Anger. Resentment. Mm-hmm. Fear. All of the things that sabotage us. Right. The remedy is service. Right. Be of service. Right. 
Remind yourself that if you were to not exist, no one would notice, not in a negative way, but in the cosmos of things. Mm -hmm. You're a speck on top of a speck of a speck. Right. So while it feels insignificant, it also is a relief that you don't have to, you, you're not carrying any burden. No. The world's going to just be fine without you. However, you can impact. Right. And that's service. Yes. So, so goodwill. I had a talk show in New York in 95. Mm -hmm. I went from a guy hustling a living to back of bus benches and, you know, pretty famous for a minute, right? Show gets canceled, life changes, everything. But when I came back, I now had a name and I had all these charities saying, hey, get involved. And there were a lot of them would would have benefited my career. They had red carpet stuff and, you know, they were, I call them designer charities. They're, they're the good ones. Right. Goodwill is not the good one. No. Goodwill's the nerdy guy in glasses in the back of a class. Right, 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 right. And not even national at Southern California. But what I liked about them is that their mission was um, not charity. And, and, and it's so pure and simple that I said, I can be down with this. This works for me. And the concept is this. And, and I always make this appeal to people about giving money is that this isn't philanthropy. There are places where you can feel good by giving money to people who are sick. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Great. Do that. This is not. This is self-interest. Right. Let me explain. A person's on the, out there, they have a physical uh, barrier to work, a mental barrier to work, or a life experience like prison or drugs or something that's kept them, they're unhireable. Mm -hmm. So what are they? They're dependent on welfare. They're, uh, they're not paying into the system. They don't pay income tax. You're paying for their existence, right? There's a crime issue possibly. Mm -hmm. their, their children are your dependents now. And what, what Goodwill does is take that person, whoever they are, find what is redeemable about them, train to that, right? Right. Place them and maintain for a period longer than you could imagine a, a liaison relationship to smooth out the uncomfortable thing of getting back to work. And all of a sudden, what has happened? Sure, you get the feel-good of philanthropy, but the person that was on the dole is now paying into the system. Right. Paying for your roads, paying for your, you know, your welfare. Your welfare. Right. Right? Right. And that, right. that works for me. Right. Right? Right. And it's selfless. It's service for service. Right. It, Again. There's it, a it, tangible it, result to it. Right. And right. I dig it. Right. So I've been involved and it doesn't do a thing for my career. But I'm involved and I can actually be involved. Like I know the people I've helped. Right? And I'm now, you know, I've been around long enough that I can, I can have an impact that is, I can see it. The great I feel thing good about, about that. I think the great thing about that also is the idea of really helping someone's self-worth. The idea that, that I am here to, to, I am here, I am on this planet to just spread this, I, I know this is going to sound so hyperbolic. I'm here to It is hyperbolic, but I, it's, I'm here to, to spread this goodwill to everybody. Let me tell you and something. You, wait, 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 one second. Please. You walk into, it's what you mentioned, you mentioned it in, in the Huffington Post article. The idea that, that, that you're in this world and living in this world, and then you see somebody look at you and their eyes brighten up and you walk up to them and suddenly, just by your being in the universe, and I don't, ever, and I don't mean about you being this uh, celebrity or no. anything like that, you have brightened someone who is now going to take that joy to somewhere else yeah. and, and spread that as well. Well, and the goodwill thing, we always talk about it, and you talk about hyperbole, but it, it, hyperbole is that it's overblown. This sounds like hyperbole, but it's completely in proportion, mm -hmm. which is there is no bigger moment in these people's lives than their first paycheck, no matter how small it is. Right. But the first time that they take a check as opposed to one that's given to them because they, they applied for a service right. and they earned it and they got it and they paid for their rent. Right. I, I've done a lot of transformational work. 
you know, you know all the hip, SD, right. all that mm -hmm, stuff. I like mm -hmm. that stuff. But you watch people when they do some sort of transformational work that they physically change what they look like. Yes, absolutely. I always talk about that. In three days, they come in looking one way. Right. They look like they lost 15 pounds and, and got 12 years younger right. with a little bit of hope. Right. I've seen it happen over and over again. Not a little bit of hope, with hope. Hope. Right. 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 When you get somebody a job, dude, and they can feed their family for the first time, they suddenly go from, I'm a sack of shit, right. to, you know what? I'm a human being. I, Absolutely. I matter. Right. And so I matter. Right. That's And huge. the celebrity thing you're talking about at Roadshow mm -hmm. is, is sort of stupid, but I've kind of figured it out. As a host rather than an actor, uh -huh. an actor we hold in high esteem. Right. It's a, there's some magic to being an actor. You're portraying somebody that you aren't, and we ask for their autographs, we want pictures, we, we, they're royalty. Mm -hmm. Hosts, if you're doing it right, are like you. And if you really are doing it right, they feel like they've already had a conversation with you. Yes. So when I meet people, they don't come up to me and go, are you that guy from, can we get? Right. They start as though we're mid-sentence. I have to catch up. My watch my grandfather gave me, right. and I'm wondering, and I'm like, dude, we've never met. But they don't know that. He, I, they met me every week. Right. And so when I go to Roadshow, um, and there's 5,000 people there who are doing nothing but standing in line right. for a five-minute moment. Right. And so thrilled to be there because oh they God. own the show. They have an ownership. Right. And then I come out. I can very easily do my thing and get out. Like right. I have people protecting me that I don't have to go anywhere. But when I'm done, I make a point to walk around. Now, my mom thought it was self-serving that I just wanted to sign autographs because my mom is like, you know, that's, we're Southern. We do, that's, that's just terrible. Why would you be out there like that? But I know for that person who's waiting for three hours in line, if I come up and, and shake hands and answer a question for them, right. somehow they go home and they go, I met that dude. Right. And they, they have more sense of ownership and for some reason they feel more important. Yes. And it cost me nothing. Well, I also, I, at the end of the show, uh, where they have the, the... Feedback booth? The feedback booth. My and everybody just said, we had a great time, we had a great time, we had a great time. I watch that. Right. And I get excited about that. Sure. I watch that and I see humanity right there. Right. My mom and I, my dad thought I had this and we, it was right. worth that much. And, and, and so... The beauty of all of that, the beauty of what you're doing, just in general, and the fact that you are associated with that show, to, there's nothing greater, you know, I have cried at that show more than I've cried in, in any other show. Can I say that? Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, because you watch somebody and you, you won't watch... be fact-checking. It's okay. <laughs> right. yeah. No, he only, he cried. Yeah. I believe he cried at the Homeland one. just this year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Terrorists scare him. But the, the idea of uh, the hope that, that somebody has in that moment, to look at that, and I go, I don't need any story other than to say, to see someone have this look in their eye that is real and organic well, I tell and you, connected. I, I tell you, the people always ask me, why is that show a hit? And we're talking about now going into our 18th season. Right. And it's been on the air 18 years already is something, but it's the highest rated original primetime series on PBS. Mm -hmm. um, and people say, why? And I say, well, the reason people tune in is to see, did they become rich? Is there hope for me to find something in the garage that I'm going to be rich? That doesn't get you 18 years. The connection and the thing that if I get misty on anything that gets me is that people are so proud to show you what they have. Right. And we never put anybody on the air who knows everything about it. It's not show and tell. We need to be able to tell you something you don't know. Right. Value, provenance, something about it that you didn't know. Mm -hmm. But what makes it work is the give and take. We tell you that after you've told us how did it come into your life. So what it is is we talk about the War of 1812 and people are like going, okay, what is that? That's just, it sounds it's like homework. It's a fact. It's just it sounds a fact. like homework. Right. It's I a gotta fact. memorize shit. Right. 
What we see on Roadshow is someone's family member was attached to this item. Right. The blood on this handle was the blood of a member of my family. And, right. And then the connectedness of it all and then the pride of it still being here. And the way I talked about it in my Puffington Post piece. Puffington Post piece. Yeah. I think that was more than subliminal because um, there was no substance. <laughs> um, uh, I said there are basically four things that drive value in antiques and collectibles. It's authenticity. Right. If it's a reproduction, it's not as valuable as an authentic, authentic piece. Condition, um, uh, rarity, and provenance. And when I talk about condition, you know, in furniture it means that there aren't, you know, coffee cup rings on it. But when you really talk about the same four things that drive value in antiques, drive value in people or experiences, that condition means that something old that has gone through owner to owner to owner to today is in good condition. Why? Because someone cared about it. And what I found works at Goodwill, works everywhere, that if you care about something, it's infectious. If you genuinely care about right. something. So I'm taking care of whatever this is, a thought, a, a relationship, right. um, an experience. And if I care, others seem to care. Right. And then the provenance part I love is that normally that's the history of something that makes it important. Mm -hmm. But then what I kind of use it as is a challenge, that in every interaction you have in the day could be, a piece of Ikea furniture, which you can sit on, but it's not going to be any good in 10 years, or is it the beginning of a history? Did you, in this interaction, in this moment, is that the first page of, of an important provenance that then adds value? Right. And that's what I think Roadshow does. It, you know, it, it's, you, you watch it and go, why am I watching this? It's, why am I watching it and why am I not turning it off? It's because there is a human and authentic and rare and priceless experience going well, on. Well, I'm going to go back to, to uh, just to to hitch my pony to that wagon, the idea of um, provenance and, uh, and and every relationship being a provenance. I remember when when you and uh, and DiCarlo, Mark mm. DiCarlo, had the show at Acme and 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 the relationship that we had, and to say that when you care about something, people care about that right. as well. Right. And when we see, because you and Mark. Um, when you had a, 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 a what's kind of a variety show, we, we just tried to do an old-fashioned variety show, right? Because we knew very famous, uh, very funny people like Absolutely. you. Absolutely, right? And if you build it, they will come, right? right? And so, th and, and the shows were beautiful. There were moments I have of that show that I think back. Uh, first of all, we had Steve Carell, we had you, we had right. all these people who oh, then I became. Forgot Carell was on. Carell that did too. one of the funniest sketches of the world, which was not a sketch. We basically said we're going to put a camera on you at the bar, right? And we're going to project it like it's a satellite image to the other side of the room because we're facing this way, but the bar's behind us. And we said we're now going to go to the kitchen to find out, you know, what the specials are. And he played like a Greek diner, right. chef. And he does. We have goat, and you did you do it with him? I think I, think I did it with him. Today we have goat soup followed by a goat pate with, the, with and he was all goat. It was fucking hysterical. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But in that, you brought all those people together yeah. because we all wanted to hang out with you because you. And I know this, you know, again, because you made us feel good about us. Well, I have I have cherry picked the Mark DiCarlo relationship, mm -hmm. which is all you guys. And what I don't think you realize is that that circle of Second City and improv people mm -hmm. get improv from a, you know, improv is like, you know how they say golf is life? Right. Improv is life. Yes. Right? All the things that make for great imp improvisation are the things that make for great relationships. And I became in awe of DiCarlo's relationship with that extended world, Nia right. and Ian and you and all these people. And I got to kind of cherry pick into there. Yes. And what was beautiful about and is beautiful about that circle, that subculture of people, is that there is no um, hierarchy of talent. 
Some people are working, some aren't. There's no, this one's funnier than me. Right. And everyone is making everyone else laugh, but what's really special is that everyone who's not at the time of making laugh wants to laugh at you. Yes. They want to let you be good. And that's something that was hard for me to get past. Like when you guys would do the, the um, you know, these Herald uh, pickup game. Yeah, you know, right. You know, all-star kind of Second City alumni, see who you're with and go play. Right. They'd all say to me, come, play with us. And I was so in awe, I'd say, ah, I can't do it. Did you ever do it? I never did it mm-hmm. really full out. I've right. d- occasionally I'd play a little bit. But it dawns on me that you're, while to me it was the greatest fear of my life because I held everybody in such high esteem, mm-hmm. What I missed was the point of why I held them in high esteem. Mm-hmm. That they would never let me flop. No. That they, it was the safest, most loving place in the world, and flopping is okay. Right. And God, it, were that the case in life? But it is. Right. It, but it can't be. Thing. If you think, because um, how often do you say no? How often do you say no to um, to in a in a work situation like will you come and do something like yes exactly asks? never 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 and all the time that you say yes to those things those opportunities are lend are, are giving you a reason to be alive right aren't they well and, I always say it's an opportunity when somebody calls me and says God, dude I'm I'm really in trouble can you lend me five hundred dollars right I thank them because. Thank God for me, I've got 500 bucks to give you. Right. And what they have provided for me is the gift of being able to do something that makes me feel great. Again, you're going into service. Right, service. And, that's it. And, and I, I think that that's one of the things that people don't realize is how our lives are an example of, or is an example, however way that would work, mm-hmm. um, of being in service. And if you live your life ser- uh, being in service, everything flows to you. It just yeah. comes to you. It's it, it, it's it. Everybody watches The Secret and says, "Yeah, but it doesn't work." Right. Or they read Marianne Williamson and say, "Yeah, yes. but it doesn't work." Right. Or they read Deepak or they try the meditation; and it doesn't work, and it's because of an expectation. And I always say this phrase I learned from something I overpaid for, um, some workshop I went to. But um, expectation always leads to upset. Expectation, even if the outcome is good, leads to upset because expectation is fake. Unconditional living is where the shit is, right? And so when you take expectation out of it, you're never disappointed, no. right? And if you're fully of service, you're not fighting anything. No. Now, that's not to say you... Where people get fucked up on this is that you can be of service, but it's conditional in your head. You're thinking you're racking up karma points. Right. And then when something doesn't go your way, you're like, well, but I helped him move the other day. Right. But that's not how it goes. No. It, the trick is to completely detach from any meaning or any outcome whatsoever I think, and just be it and let the service be the gift. I think that a lot of people <clears throat> see that there has to be a mathematical equation to it. I see it, it all the time. And they're, what's that? I see it all the time. All the time. Yeah. And so there are people who go, you know what, I did that and that. And when people go, that guy's karma is going to be coming up. It's like, that's not how karma no, works. there's too many At evil least... people that have bigger careers than me. Exactly. Right. Or people who are douchebags. But you know what they got to do? They don't have everything. In I the have. morning, they got to wake up and be them. And I look at that and I go, I'm so sorry because yeah, you think that you don't have a choice, but you do. Yeah. And the all, another idea is we are not, and I've said this before on, uh, on the podcast, we are not who it is that our story is. We can change that at any minute that That's we right. want to change right. that. That's, right. That's an illusion as well. It is an illusion. You, you know who's, who's awesome is Russell Simmons? Yes. And yes. He's a, you know, he's a yogi. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Besides being a hip-hop, you know, Impresario. And a financial genius. Right. But people say... He, he came up with a, po- a posturepedic, right? 
Uh, Russell Simmons posturepedic? Yes, he did. The mattress. His brother, um, his, his brother Tupac Sheely. Sheely. Tupac Sheely. Yes. Tupac Sheely. Yeah, his brother. Anyway, so uh, Russell Simmons, yeah. yeah. So he. He said, he, he wrote this book. Um, His tweets, by the way, are great. I follow him. Yeah. Um, he wrote this book about, you know, how to become rich. Mm -hmm. And I forgot what the title was. I'm embarrassed to tell you that because it's pretty good, but, you know, how, how to be rich. And he said, I had a title of that because nobody would buy the truth, which is you already have everything you need. Right. The rich is, people think rich is acquiring shit, right? Rich is not needing anything. Right. And that's a state of mind. That's so awesome. And luckily, so my awesome. career has reinforced that over and over again, that my detachment <laughs> to material things right. is reinforced regularly. Right. And I said, someday I hope to afford the lifestyle my wife and kids are living, because they're doing great. <laughs> Your kids in college? My son left yesterday. Yesterday. And both my kids have pursued and have succeeded in ridiculously rigorous disciplines, mm -hmm. which I say is, you're talking about I married a woman who was a child actress, and she and I live for today. We never know what tomorrow is, and then not, not in a good way, in the irresponsible, some, one of us needs to grow up way. And I think that my kids have both impo imposed really hard rigor on their lives because they knew um, there was a chance that we weren't going to be able to provide what they need. So my son <laughs> is going to be a Navy pilot. He's a Navy ROTC, full scholarship at Virginia Military Institute. Shut up. Hardcore guy, right? And I that's said, a big, Virginia, that's VMI, right? Yeah, yeah. not only military, southern right. military. Right. He's a Jew from Sherman Oaks who no one has told him he isn't Huck Finn the redneck. <laughs> I, honest to God, I said, Morgan, I told, I'm raised from, in South Carolina. Right. But I was raised in like, yeah, it was a small town, but, you know, we had plumbing and stuff, right? right? He sees it like I was like killing rabbits and cooking them in the back, right? So he's like emulated this thing. He is the incredible blend of soldier statesmen. I've never seen anything like it. Mm. But I laugh that, that the military to him seemed safe. He knew he was going to eat. He knew what he would have clothes, that they would take care of him. He can't count on that. I'm going to take care of that. Right. Because I'm show business. I'm like, you know, hey, man. So what was really interesting, you talk about expectation, is that my wife and I had the full expectation of supporting our children in whatever endeavor. We were going to be the parents that supported you no matter what your choice was. Mm -hmm. I thought the choice would be writing poetry and smoking dope and living in a cave. Right. Right? Apparently, that's my choice. <laughs> he is a patriot. Right. A conservative. Wow. Not, not, um, socially. Not socially conservative. Right. He's not homophobic. He's right. not uh, racist. He's none right. of that. But he's conservative. He believes mm -hmm. that we have a responsibility to serve our country. Yes. He believes that you've got to pay into the system before you take out of the system. Yes. Um, and he believes in being strong. And he, he says, no, it's not for everybody, but I don't mind going and taking care of it for you. Right. And he is connected to it. And all you can dream of for your kids is that they have a passion. Right. So he's um, like the only Jew at VMI. Right. And, and they celebrate him. Like, because he's They this, do. Well, he's like an alpha male. Like, uh -huh. Had he gone in as, like me, right. they'd have been kicking his ass every day. Right, right. But he's, he's like the bear Jew from uh, Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. You know, they, they fear him a little bit. They can't figure out what he is. He's like right. the white buffalo. Uh -huh. You know, they look for his horns every day. Can't right. find him. Right, right. But, um, but he also is a natural leader of people. Mm -hmm. So as strong as he is, he understands where that line is. And that's hard to, to really talk about. The line being of, the of line surrender. Of, the line of tough love in the military, okay. which is beating up the subordinates, mm -hmm. has to be for a purpose. And if you're connected to the purpose, mm -hmm. then the, the method can be extreme. But what is often lost in those, um, you know, 
Examples? It, no, in, in, in a military situation or something like that that's, that, that's over our line of mm -hmm. tough love is that yelling for yelling's sake or mean for mean's sake or tradition's sake isn't it. He's connected to, I'm going to beat the shit out of you emotionally. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you're going to see that what I'm doing actually is building the foundation for you to be great. Okay, so And that again, turn is often lost on our great leaders. Well, I, it seems to me that what you're talking about there is... It's, oh, this is going to sound weird. It's selfless in a way because it's not like I have to prove to you that I am right. I am proving to you. I am not proving anything to you. Right. I am I, showing you by example. By example. And I'm holding you to a standard that you don't know that you're able to handle. And I am going to stick to that, to a standard. I, and you're going to see that my holding on to my standard is right. an example to you. And what happens is you'll get a kid who comes in overweight, mm -hmm. not motivated, mm -hmm. and having trouble. And Morgan, as his superior officer now, because he's a cadet what, situation, you, he's, he's, just he's a junior in? now. Oh, okay, fine. And now uh -huh. he's got he's the master sergeant, which uh -huh. is the Lou Gossett Jr. role of officer and a gentleman. Uh -huh. it's the, he's the bad guy. Wow. He's the trainer. Uh -huh. So he beats this kid up. Not physically. You don't touch him physically. Mm -hmm. Get down, give me 20, give me 20, give me 20, give me 20. The kid breaks down. Mm -hmm. Has the kid come to his room at the end of the night, which is a punishment. And he says to the kid, give me push-ups. He can only do eight. And Morgan gets down there with him and... And he's yelling at him. He says, look, you think you can only do eight. You're stronger than you know. Right. Guys who are not as strong as you are doing 25. Right. Now, I know you don't believe it, but I believe it. Right. And before you leave my room, right. you're going to be doing the most. Well, now the kid does 10. He does 12. He does 14. Mm -hmm. Then there comes a period of time where he's no longer obligated to come to Morgan's room anymore. Mm -hmm. He's not allowed to order him to come to his room. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the superior officer to Morgan says to the rat, that's what they call them as mm -hmm. rats, you know, Rat Smith. Yes, yes, uh, corporal, yes, uh, whatever he is. sergeant, whatever he was. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, you're no longer obligated to go down to Master Sergeant Wahlberg's room. Kid steps back in line. And there's a beat and his hand goes up again. He goes, what is it, Rat Smith? And he steps forward and he says, may this rat still go down to Corporal Wahlberg's room. <laughs> because Morgan had found that line of you, you beat them up until they're confused, right? Until they're they're questioning everything, right? And then you have to give them some dignity so that they can get back up. Mm -hmm. And a lot of leaders in business, in life, in the military don't get that line. Mm -hmm. You don't beat people up just for to make you bigger. No, it's not about you. You have to do it to say there's a way. You don't know how far you can go, and until you push the limits of your abilities, your pain threshold, your emotional threshold, do you realize you're much stronger than you think? I think and that, that's a beautiful thing when you see it happen. I think that, that those of us who, who are teachers uh, or directors right. even we're, are able to go, you don't have faith in yourself, but I have faith in that's yourself. It. That's and when the I tell and when I see when I see somebody in my class say, I can't do that, I'm like, if you say so, but you know what? You can. Right. And if you say you can't, you can't. And it right. goes back to that story. The idea of what story are you holding on to? Right. Because that 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 overweight kid was holding on to the story that I I'm can't fat, do that. I'll never that. be strong. Exactly. That's and it. the idea of like I have absolute faith in you. Right. And anybody that is anybody that is in any position of uh, of power is there because well, not everyone, but but many are there because they're going. You know what? Look at me. I have faith in you. You've got to know that I have faith in you. Well, I find and there's, I, there's two kinds of leaders, mm -hmm. good and bad. And the bad ones are they've got to that position by hard work or whatever. They, they have some redeeming qualities that got them there. Mm -hmm. But now their everyday existence is to impose their strength on others to make themselves bigger. Right. Right. It's all about me. This right. goes back to everything we're talking about. Mm -hmm. The real leaders in this world bring it hard when it needs to be brought. Right. 
and they back off when it doesn't need to be brought because it's not about you. You're no. not validating them at all. No. They're giving, they're being of service to create in you something you didn't want. And that's what turns them on. My son gets turned on by seeing a kid rise above. Right. And you know, and my daughter's another story. My daughter's a, a high-level ballet dancer who's just about to leave the roost and go at the highest levels of ballet schools. And Where? she's competing at that level. Or is she in, she's in L.A.? She's in L.A. right now, but mm-hmm. we just came back from New York. She auditioned for ABT Ballet School, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we're waiting to hear on that. So, mm-hmm. you know, both of them, um, and I, I, I credit my wife on this. My wife's favorite phrase is, life's not a dress rehearsal. Right. Right? And my wife is like, you know, where you would take your kid to Gymboree Mm-hmm. For to learn how to do a forward roll, my wife was like, "Yeah, we'll learn the forward roll, but you're going to do it in an Olympic training center, so you can see what is it you're really doing. Like, all right, this is a forward roll, but that's the goal. That's where you could go, right? If you want it, right? The trick as a parent <clears throat> is to know how far to push and how far uh, and when to let go. And I always tell parents, you don't lead your kids. If you do it right, you follow your kids. Right. You allow their light to shine because kids light up. Literally light up. You see that. Right. With follow their passion, support yeah. their passion. And 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 this is the hard part. Their passion is often not yours. Exactly. They don't get to you don't get to relive your mistakes by creating geniuses, you know, who were great baseball players because you weren't great. Well, it goes right? back to what Which you were is, saying about your what you and your, your you and your wife had that that plan of going, let's let's support them in any way that yeah. we want to. Right. But I think that a lot of parents probably go, I'm going to support them in any way that I want to. That gets them to Northwestern Med School. Exactly, right? right? And that is not where they want to go. And moral and that's why I always talk about little league sports is like AA. Both well-intended and very good organizations. Mm-hmm. But I say, you know, AA is awesome, except it's run by alcoholics, right? So there are some problems. So Little League is awesome, mm-hmm. but it's run by parents. And, and the thing, the, and they're not necessarily, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Your your example, your your example your, of, of the Jimbury, the Jimbury example is great because the Jimbury example says this is the little universe that we live in. No, it's not. Right. We live in a huge universe. Right. And what is it? The world of possibilities. You've got to see the world of possibilities. Right. I never thought context. I never thought that I would be able to. Uh, I, I never thought that I would be at Second City right. and be the artistic director of Second City. I fucking never thought that either. Right, right. But at the end of the, what ended up happening was you start with this little step and then a little step and then a little step and then a little step and then right. suddenly you're, you're at a place where you go, wait a minute, I I'm could here. do that. Right. Well, when I first started performing, I, I was in this musical theater group. Where was this? Um, it was, uh, I was doing a sort of a summer stock program. Out of what state? In, in northern Michigan. Uh-huh. I came from South Carolina. Uh-huh. I took a Greyhound bus. It, it, honest to God, it was like the worst gay movie you ever saw. Um, I got on the bus in South Carolina, mm-hmm. and every stop would be another kid getting on the bus with a guitar. You're mm-hmm. like, I think we're going to the what same place. What was the name of the place? In, uh, it was, uh, we were in residency at North Central Michigan College. There was a group called the Young Americans, mm-hmm. which was a singing and dancing group since 1962. Mm-hmm. But what I always think about David in those Bowie, days, right? what, pardon me? David Bowie, the young American. Yes, exactly, David right. Bowie, yes. So yes. we were all kind of glam rockers. And exactly. First day was, was makeup. You were Ziggy, right? And then he learned how to bedazzle. Then you worked on singing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, you so, go so over I, there. I go there and I'm part of a group of 120 or so. And we're did you doing, audition for this? I did. I auditioned in my hometown. But uh-huh. again, a mistake. I was doing a play, like mm-hmm. some French farce that I was doing at college. Mm-hmm. And my mother was coming to see the Young Americans who were doing a concert date at my college. Mm-hmm. So when she came, she said, listen, after rehearsal, come meet me for a drink. Mm-hmm. When I came to meet her, they were tearing down and they were going to have an audition. You know, anybody hanging out who wanted to audition. Really? So while I'm there talking to my mom, I said, hell, I'll, I'll audition. And for my audition, I sang a song, Horrible. And they said, do you know any Barry Manilow? This is, the, you know, 
1981 or something. I said, well, I only know one Barry Manilow song that we sang in choir last year in high school. I said, well, do that. And I said, okay, but I only know the bass part. <laughs> so I sing, and I'll <laughs> do it for you now. Okay, good. I write the songs that make the whole world sing. <laughs> I write the songs of love and special things. Do, do, do. Young girls cry. <laughs> Music. The songs. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That's like having headphones and right. just one exactly. speaker exactly. is working. Exactly. <laughs> so, but it's I like, wasn't supposed to do it. The next thing I know, it, it changed my life entirely. But I mean, let's just pause right there yeah. for a minute and just go look at that. I got 50 of those. I'm doing, I'm a PA. I left at Clark Productions. I'm a runner. I got hired for Kevin Bright, who went on to do uh, Friends and Dream On was his show and all that. Mm-hmm. But this was a half-hour special with Meryl Marco, mm-hmm. the comedy writer, right. and performer. And she was Another doing... good tweeter. Oh, is she? I oh, really follow. good, really so good. So I'm the lowest of low on this small, low-budget production for HBO. She's doing a Meryl, Meryl Marco's Marco Guide does... for Glamorous Living. Uh-huh. One of the scenes was a spoof on Madonna's Material Girl video, where it's these guys with the tuxedos with the, like, the count red um, like sash across them. Mm-hmm. And it's a production number. Well, this was so low-budget that not only am I a runner... But because I had some experience, I'm on a ladder focusing lights because mm-hmm. we had no one to do that. So I'm on the ladder trying to get the lights fixed. And I'm watching. They, they shot the opening scene with four dancers. Now one of the dancers goes up. It's taking forever. It's taking forever. And he's got another gig. He's got to leave. And they're going to do the close-up. <laughs> so now everybody's flipping out. We've got four dancers, but we don't have to match the shot. What are we going to do? I'm just stupid enough. I come down off the ladder. I go to the production manager. I said, look, I could do it. He's like, oh, kid, listen, I, can, I don't have time for this. I'm like, look, it's your problem. You've got a master shot with four. You've got three dancers. I think I'll fit the suit. I know how to do it. <laughs> if you fit the suit, you it's wanna, a Brady Bunch. Yeah, I swear to God that's what happens. So he says, if you can learn the steps before the first shot, go ahead and do it. So I go. I, I get the suit. It fits me fine. I learn the steps. I come off the ladder as a runner. Now I'm a dancer in the number. And if you look closely, there's one dancer with like dirt under his fingernails. <laughs> Finish the scene. They all go, oh, my God, that was amazing. I take off my suit. I'm back up the ladder and changing the lights. Happens. There's so many moment of truth. Right. Big huge primetime network show that lasted a season or two, but whatever. I was doing a pilot for another show, Sweet Little Game Show, over at Hollywood Center. Mm-hmm. I finished the show about 8.30 at night. Hollywood Center, wait, I know where this is. Where's That's it? on Las Palmas, right around the corner. Yes, right. I finished the pilot about 8.30 at night. We started at 8 in the morning. And I thought to myself, I'm getting old, because normally I'd go out and have a beer with the crew or something. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't even feel like it. I'm just going to go home. Didn't take my makeup off. Mm-hmm. Got my suit on. Getting in my car, Mike Maddox calls me. Mm-hmm. We are our yeah. close friend, uh-huh. producer. Mark, we got a problem. Where are you? I said, well, I'm in Hollywood. He said, um, we're doing a pilot over here for, at the time, NBC. And um, it's not working out with our host. They want to make a change. And they were wondering, could you do it? <gasps> I'm like, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. So I drive around the block. I get to the block. Mike gets in my car. We park the car, and we kind of slump down in the chair as we watch the other host get to his car. Ooh. It was Dr. Drew, right? He's no, he's no slouch. It just... Drew, it wasn't a fit. Uh-huh, Drew wanted to fix right. people, and Drew then went on to do great things. Right. It wasn't. Oh, this is before. It wasn't, it was, it wasn't it was, real, no, no. I mean, Drew was still doing his thing. But it was right. before celebrity rehab. Right. It wasn't like he was fired as much as it just wasn't working. Right. He wasn't happy. They weren't happy. Right. So he walks out. I get up. I'm walking. Mike's talking in one ear. Another guy's talking in another ear. I don't hear anything. I take my tie off and give it to Mike. I drink a cup of coffee from the other guy. Mm-hmm. I walk into the studio. I walk in. I look at it. The, the, the stage manager comes <sighs> and starts talking to me. I said, "Shh, let me handle this." I look and see where the cameras are. First thing I do is go to the audience. Again, right. this is where I grew up. Your service. I go to the audience. I said, how long have you been here? Right. And they start yelling, we've been here since like 10 in the morning. And it's terrible. And I said, guys, give me an hour. I will get you out by midnight. Just give me an hour. Mm-hmm. If you stay with me, I'll get you out 
by midnight. Right. Cool? And right. they love me now, right? right? They're still trying to talk to me. I said, everybody be quiet. I go sit in my chair. I say, count it. They count down five, four, three, two, one. I'm hosting the show. Right. And I just learned. It's going beautifully. goes great. We go to getting ready to go to commercial. And we'll be right back with, and I don't know the name of the show. No! It comes up in the prompter. <laughs> and I read the prompter, and they go to break, and they go, oh, my God, it's great. And it sells in 20 countries. The point is, had I auditioned. What was the show? It became Moment of Truth. It became Moment of Truth. Right? Uh-huh. But the point is, that's another example where I didn't audition. I wasn't right. the first person chosen. Right. No one would have said on a Friday night at 9 o'clock at night that I would get a call to do a pilot. Right. Right. That would end up paying me a lot of money the next Ooh. year. Right. Right. And there, I've had about five different moments like that. There's also something that, that goes along with the hosting gig. Because a mm. friend of mine's an MC, Richard Label. I talk about oh. him in a lot of shows. You I know worked Richard? with Richard Label by mis- I knew Richard Label through Mark DiCarlo's okay. friends. Right. But I met him on a corporate because he does a lot of corporate That's work. That's what I'm and talking I do too. about. I just came from a corporate doing one in, in Phoenix. Yeah, he's a genius. And he's, a, he's what? He's a genius. He's a genius. Crazy he's genius. so great. He's crazy great. And and things like, but when you, it's like you really remind me of him because you go. That's a huge compliment. Thank well, you. Well, on a gig, like there's a couple of people that you want on the gig. And I've mentioned this about Richard before. You, like you want a gig and uh, like for you to go, there's that, 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 that. Just Here's the, the audience. Problem. And you know what? All that it matters is you got to look like you, you got to look like you belong. And if you don't believe that you belong, then you don't belong. That's right. That's right. and, and, and with Dr. Drew, it didn't fit because he didn't but, feel like he belonged. But to his credit... I'm not saying... I'm not knocking it at all. No, no. And there's something I learned from him. Right. Is that I'm a people pleaser. Right. So even if it was going down in flames, I would have kept trying and trying and trying mm-hmm. because I wanted them to like me. Right. Drew had enough self-confidence to realize this isn't for me and it's not for you. I love I'm it. Out. Right. I learned from that. Right. And there's no shame in saying, you know what? Not working. I did a... Um, uh, uh, I mentioned it in the, in the last uh, interview that we had. Uh, somebody asked me to do a, uh, to look at their script. And I looked at the script and I had a hard time with it. And I gave the guy notes and I said it really wasn't working. And right. he said, okay, uh, I'm going to make some changes. And he made some changes and I looked at it and I thought, no, this isn't for me. And I, and I sent him an email yesterday and it felt so good to go, no, yeah. I am not I am not, I, I, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing right, right now. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And if I had to take it or if I forced myself to take it, my heart wouldn't be in it, my mind wouldn't mm-hmm. be in it, and, my, and this is the most important thing. My creativity would not be in it because those two things, the heart and the mind, is what drives the creative force. Right. Working hard <clears throat> is not the answer. No. Passion makes you work hard, yes. but it doesn't feel like work. Right. So working hard, if you find yourself working hard, right. you're not going the same way the universe wants you to go. Clearly. Every success I've had, and there have been some very big ones, have always been supernaturally easy and, um, and anomalies in that sense. Yes. Everything would have told you it can't happen like this. Look at that. And yet it happens effortlessly like mm-hmm. that. So the trick that age has taught me right. is in your times when you're unsure is to get real quiet and wait till you hear the right way to go. That's so because true. Because when you're driving the bus, you can't pay attention. And I, I can, you know, my talk show, I did a pilot for a talk show in 95, a syndicated talk show. Brandon Tartikoff mm-hmm. is the one who gives it to me. Got it. So already I'm up in the head. I mean, Tartikoff is one of the top five people in the history of television. Right. And we do a pilot. Started SNL, right? Uh, yeah. Right. Head of NBC, started right. SNL, started right. a bunch of stuff. He also started, uh, uh, I think he did, um, what was that ter- terrible one? Um, 
can't remember what it is now, but it's a couple real flops too. So I like that as well. But um, I got this pilot, we shot the pilot, and it was very Jerry Springer, Ricky Lakey, and not good. And you would think you get the pilot, which is a huge opportunity, and it's not good, well, you're dead. Now, NATB, which is where they sell this, happens third week of January, and we're now in a situation where we have to shoot, reshoot. They, the option they're offering them is to reshoot the pilot entirely, and it has to be shot between Christmas and New Year's. Now, everything in your soul would tell you that this is just not going to happen, right? Right. But they said, okay. And we shot this really wonderful pilot that fit my style, and the show was sold to the entire country, and it went on the air. But if someone had said to you, you're going to have to do two pilots, and you're going to have to shoot it over Christmas break, and that's going to work, you would have said, that's never going to work. That's so interesting. And, and so I stopped a long time ago trying to figure it out. Right. And I mean, the things like, you know, I traditionally get no work in December. It just mm -hmm. doesn't happen. And then my daughter really needed to get to New York and Miami. And we were like, I don't know how to get you to New York and Miami. But rather than talking about what I don't know, I know enough to know that there's a world of possibility that I have no control over. God. Nor, nor do I have enough. I don't even have the muscle to imagine that big. So let's put in the schedule. When would it be best for us to go? I think December 6th would be a great time to go. No sooner do I do that than I get a call. Hey, here's this corporate that we've got. It's last minute and we can't pay your rate. Can you do it? I say, sure, and I'll do it for your rate, but buy me two round-trip tickets from L.A., New York, Miami, L.A. Can you do that? Happy to do it. Now, not only are we doing it on the dates that I did it, I'm doing it for free and they're paying me to do it. Yep. And that's called effortless. Yes. Just by asking. It's, it, and, and it goes back to, and I've had conversations with people about this, the concept of manifestation. The idea that if you go, you know yeah, what, man. it's going to happen, man. It's going to happen. If you say it's not going to happen, right. it's not going to happen. My, my thing is, I say, thank you in advance. Exactly. If it's your will for this happen. <laughs> right. Thank you already. Right. Thank you and in advance. And if it doesn't happen, thank you. Right. Dick Clark said, I never run for a flight. And I said, why? He said, because if I don't make the flight, I wasn't supposed to be on the plane. That he said, dude, think about it. Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, Dick Clark. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> He's the host for those right, guys. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> like, if I don't make a flight, I say thank you. I don't run. That is awesome. Yeah, man. Okay, let's end on that. Thank you for listening to the ADD Comedy Podcast. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on ADD Comedy, you can visit our website at www.theaddcomedytour.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ADD Comedy Pod. If you're in the Los Angeles area and you're interested in taking a class with Dave, you can find that information at his website at www.davidrosowski.com. Sound services for the ADD Comedy Podcast was brought to you by Post Apocalyptic.